Here we go. You're listening to Rumination Law and Gospel on this Thursday, October the 8th. I'm Pastor Tom Baker, and with me is my co-host, Wes Reimnitz. Hi, Wes. Hi, Tom. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good, but I'm not sure we're going to be doing real good when we finish our text for today. <laughs> I've got an interesting... Oh... This is a principle I have that when I go around doing lectures and do parables, rarely do the laity in the church have the right understanding of the parable. And I I make a distinction between interpretation and application. A lot of times the interpretation is pretty clear, but even there, there are some problems. Remember, the New Testament talks about a baptism of the dead. I have mm. no idea what they're talking about. Do you? No. Yeah. Now, if you lived at that time, you would understand what was being said, but we can't even interpret that. There's about 16 options, and eight of them are definitely contrary to the rest of the Bible. But mm. normally, you can get past at least the interpretation. But then the application is often, and that's how you apply it to the people. Uh, I'll give you one example, and I'm hearing a lot of this these days, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everybody Mm -hmm. can pretty well interpret it. Namely, Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan helping out a Jew, and he takes him to an inn. But then the application is just horrible. They often say, well, the purpose of the Good Samaritan is to get us to love our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And that's their application. I believe that's the very opposite of the Good Samaritan. How's that? It's opposite. Yes. When Jesus tells the story about the Samaritan helping out the Jew, He's actually answering a question from the lawyer who had come to trick him. And the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it was the I do that Jesus is looking at. And he said, well, you want to do something? You have to love your neighbor, including the Samaritans, which you hate. And even at the end of the parable, Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. And, of course, he can't. And and so the parable of the Good Samaritan actually is teaching us that salvation is impossible by loving your neighbor. Now, it's not that we shouldn't love our neighbor and do the best we can, but it's not part of the salvation process. Jesus' parable answers the question, there's really nothing you can do to earn merit or deserve salvation. So Monday I was out and they did a repeat broadcast and uh, they did it on the Philippians passage from three years ago. Uh, But there was a gospel reading from Matthew 22. And that's the parable of the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So would you kind of summarize that parable uh, up to verse 10 as to what it is 
saying what Jesus says, and then stop at verse well, ten. Uh, as as introduction, he he had parables in chapter twenty one, and uh, and there in verse forty five twenty one, the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his par- parables, and they perceived that they were speaking about them. And then you go into chapter twenty two, the wedding feast. Jesus spoke to them in parables, and, and well, who's to them? It's the chief priests and the Pharisees. And he compared it to a king who had a wedding feast for his son, and uh, he sent out uh, son uh, servants to call those in to the wedding feast that uh, would come, and he would invite them. And it's a classic: I have oxen, fat calves, I have a field to attend to. In other words, I got uh, I'm pretty busy right now, and they paid no attention. Those are the people who were invited and they refused to come. Refused to come, yes. Yeah. And then the king got angry and sent his troops and destroyed the murderers and burned their cities. And then uh, he said to his servants to go out and say, the feast is ready and invite those and go to the roads and byways and invite the many to the wedding feast which he did, and he found both good and bad to the dining hall that was filled with guests. Yes, up to that point, the parable can be understood, and it might be able to be applied that obviously Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, which is the holy Christian church on earth. And Jesus, of course, invited people into it, but many of the unbelieving Pharisees and scribes not only did not want to be part of his kingdom, but they ended up crucifying him. And so he then goes and gets the good and the bad. Uh, That would be referring to what the Pharisees consider as sinners. Jesus would talk with tax collectors, with prostitutes, and a number of them would come to faith, and they were at the wedding feast. So it's not too hard to give the application up to that point. But do me a favor and actually read from the Bible verses 11 to verse 14. But when the king came and looked in at the guests, he saw that a man had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendant, bind his hand, foot, and cast him into the darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, here I am in the pulpit talking to a whole bunch of people who are members of the congregation, and I need to apply this part of the parable to them. And I always like, trying to apply it by means of a question. And so what I would ask the congregational members, how do you know that you have on the wedding garment? Because the problem is that there are many at the wedding feast, but there's this one individual who doesn't have a wedding garment on. And the question is, how can you be sure you have a wedding garment. Now, you and I talked about this ahead of time, 
and we were trying to figure out, okay, what is the wedding garment? How do people know whether they're wearing it or not wearing it? Uh, one answer was, well, if you're baptized, then that means you're wearing the wedding garment. But we are not Calvinists. In other words, we don't believe once saved, always saved. We believe that a person can fall from the faith and therefore not have on the wedding garment. They may become Mormon or Jehovah Witness or those nuns who no longer want to be affiliated with any Christian denomination. So how do you know whether or not you have the wedding garment on? So well, what was your thinking? Yeah, I, I kind of, that is uh, quite the interpretation. You know, as I looked out there and I looked at some sermons that were out there, they all deal with verses 1 to 10, but nobody wants to touch verses 11 and 12. Well said. And why do you think they don't want to touch it? Well, how is it that you have the garment and you don't have the garment? How do you yes. explain that person that doesn't have the garment? Yes. So I've given a lot of thought to that. In fact, I lost some nights sleep on it, trying to get through. And what really helped me was CFW Walther's Law and Gospel. Uh, he was one that has these really good distinctions. Um, so uh, another answer that some people have given, and I remember I was at a meeting with other pastors, and the question was, uh, how do you know you are saved? And the answer by three of them was that, well, I know I have faith. And CFW Walther, we went through that yesterday, that that is a false distinction between law and gospel, that you say, I know I'm saved in light of my faith, because of my faith, etc. Why is that wrong to say that? Well, it's, it depends on a, on a certain amount of work righteousness. Yes. You know, I was looking at a lot of different newspaper articles, and one I found in India where the, these guys were following a, a, a false uh, goddess, and they, they're um, very angry that they can't go out and, and parade her around on their festival date. In other words, to do their work righteousness. I mean, why were they not able to do that? Because of the COVID. They, oh, they okay. Because of the virus. All right. Virus, and they were out of sorts because they couldn't do their their duty, their yes. work righteousness, working their way to heaven by having these parades. Well, that's a great example that they would have said the way I'm saved is by doing what my God says I have to do. And therefore, when the government tells me I'm unable to go and do that, they're going to get really angry. Now, the question that I'm going to be dealing with is, how do you know you have the robe of righteousness? It's got to be, the answer has got to be something 
that gives you evidence that you have the robe of righteousness. Uh, We had talked about the possibility of, well, when you're baptized, uh, you receive the righteousness of Christ. You're justified. Remember, Abraham believed the promises of God, and it was declared to him as righteousness. The problem is you don't feel like you're righteous because of your sin. And so you can't really just say, well, you know you're saved because you're righteous in the sight of God. You may believe that, but there's no evidence that you can see except for the promise of God. And therefore, you have to rely on your faith, which isn't a very good idea because your faith keeps failing. And so people really get worried. Well, do I have sufficient faith? Remember that one gentleman where a healing took place? I believe, help thou my... Unbelief. Yes. So, I'm trying to figure out what can we say to the people in the pew to help them understand they have salvation, that they are wearing the wedding garment? Well, I still hold to, to, to your baptism. And in Luther's small catechism, he reminds us to, to daily renew that baptism each day. Uh, it isn't a... a uh, once, once saved, always saved. Uh, right. But uh, that that uh, you wear the clothes of righteousness. In, in researching this, I found a half dozen or so passages, you know, that, that speak about being clothed. Uh, but the clothing is is from on high. In that parable, you notice the king provides the wedding garment. Uh, the guests don't provide it for right. whatever reason. For whatever reason, in the parable, the, the one who doesn't have it, has it decided not to make make part of the, the uh, of the uh, wedding garment. Luther would say that the feast. He he likens the feast to this in the Lord's Supper, baptism, gospel, absolution. That uh, yes. he doesn't really believe in it. Yeah. Well, the problem is, and I don't have a difficulty from God's point of view, that being baptized, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And so he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Okay? But the people in the pew are wondering, Okay, my baptism may be valid, but has it been effective? You know, when you read that section you just read that this is a daily baptism, I'd ask the question, uh, do you daily look back to your baptism? And the vast majority of people in the pews are going to say no. <laughs> that, that is true. So yeah. we've got another problem. Now, you know how I like teaching? I like teaching by asking questions because I really believe that people know the answers in their heart, but it's not up to their head. In other words, the purpose of every sermon and Bible study 
is to get your head to be caught up with your heart. And the heart I'm talking about is that new heart that David talks about. Creating me a new heart. Yeah, it's a clean heart. I renew a right spirit within me. Okay, so what's the evidence that we can give to these people that they're saved? We're a new creature because of Christ. But we don't feel like we're a new creature. (laughs) See, those are all promises, and you are correct in saying those things, and it can be helpful, but a lot of people don't think they're really a new creature. So I'm going through this, and it suddenly hits me. And would you like to know what my question is going to be? Yeah. I knew it. (laughs) And it took me a while to figure it out. How did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he said to him, the man was speechless. And here comes the question. Why did he not realize that he needed a wedding garment. He didn't believe. He didn't trust in those promises. No. Remember, he's an unbeliever. So you can't say that about the people in the pew. You've got to say something to the people in the pew. Let me ask it this way then. For the people in the pew... Why do they think that they need a wedding garment? Because they were invited to have a wedding garment in order to have, quote, that that salvation into into the feast. Close. The guy who is speechless... The Pharisees, did they believe they needed right. a wedding garment? No. Well, in fact, uh, yeah, I see what you're talking about. Pharisees were, were a group that uh, were well-dressed. You know, they felt like uh, they have kept the law perfectly, even down to the clothes that they were wearing and their daily, you know, keeping of the you, law. You just hit it on the head, what you just said. They felt that they had kept the law perfectly and there was no need for a wedding garment. Mm. Why do the people in the congregation, how is their attitude different than that? Oh, well, they know that they, they sin daily. Exactly. That's why they have the wedding garment on. And so... The evidence that you are a Christian, and I picked this up out of CFW Walther, is you don't believe, as a Christian, that you deserve salvation. Mm. And it's the Lord's work to show you what you confess. What's one of our confessions we use in the liturgy? I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Who deserves nothing but eternal punishment. But I'm heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. Well, that's the point. You confess that you deserve eternal punishment. And guess what? 
When God hears that, only a believer can say that. And therefore, Mm. they are dressed in the wedding garment. In fact, we have a worship service called Matins. And a lot of people don't use it because there's no communion liturgy attached to it. But a lot of times I like using it. And so after I go through the sermon, I then have them turn to the page that's talking about the communion liturgy. But before we do that, what do I have them do? Confession of sins. The what? The confession. Exactly. That's what makes you worthy to receive the Lord's Supper, that you confess that you are unworthy to receive the Lord's Supper. And there is plenty of evidence in your life that you haven't met the requirements of good works in order to be saved. And that's why this guy doesn't have the wedding garment on. He doesn't think he needs it. And so when he's asked the question, how did you get in here? He is speechless. In other words, he can't give a reason why he doesn't have the wedding garment on. Because like the Pharisees, he doesn't believe that he needs one. You you know, that makes a lot of sense because before the parable, he talks about that he was speaking to them, the Pharisees and the chief priests. And at the end of that, in the next chapter, the Pharisees were looking to to trap him or entangle him. Exactly. They knew knew that he was talking to them who thought that they had done all the requirements of the law. And they had 436 years from the time of Malachi to the time of Christ to get this work righteousness work together. Yeah, you, you, you just had the situation that they thank God they weren't like the tax collector. See, that's a way of saying, I don't need the wedding garment because my works have become the wedding garment. But they're naked. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. Once they sinned, they realized they were naked and went and hid from God. That's Mm. the beginning of faith. And uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, when is the day of salvation? He says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that I believe in in those promises of the gospel that Christ yes. and those promises that Christ has died for, rose for me. See, Jesus in the first chapters of Mark talks about his ministry. He says, I have come, and he encourages people, repent and believe in the gospel. It's that repentance that John the Baptist worked on as a preparation for people recognizing that they needed the wedding garment. Mm. And, of course, Christ is baptized by the Baptist, although he didn't need to be. And in that baptism is where we say that Jesus took on the sins of all mankind. Exactly. Jesus became a sinner for us. And if, if a person wants to know whether or not they are saved, 
It sounds strange, but it is found in the confession of your sin that if you really believe that you're a poor, miserable sinner deserving nothing but temporal and eternal punishment, that becomes the evidence for you that you are a Christian. Because mm. only Christians can say that. There's no other religion that even comes near to that. I need that robe of righteousness that only Christ can give. Exactly. And the reason I know I need it is because I'm a poor, miserable sinner. sinner. That's yep. how I would apply this particular parable to the people in the pews. I like that idea better. And, you know, you're one of the few that I've seen out there that's taken the time to try and, and uh, take that, that, that on about what, verse 11 and 12. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll tell you, parables are really hard to apply. They're easy to interpret, but how to apply them, that's something. Tomorrow's Law and Gospel, Open Mic Friday. Send me a letter or an email. I'll respond to any questions. I'm Tom Baker and Wes Reimnitz. God bless you. On Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962.